0: Thanks for coming. Um, what I'm going to talk about is um, a small part of some research that was jointly carried out between um, myself and five other people um, in my department. Um, okay. We did this about a couple of years ago. We've actually stopped doing it now, and we've moved on to, the, to look at other things. Um, so we've got some publications, and I'll put those at the end. Um, so this was an ESLC-funded um, piece of research that we just about I think it was 18 months altogether. Our title is When's Asylum Seeker Not an asylum seeker, which sounds like the sort of riddle you get in a Christmas cracker, something like that. Um, but what I'll try and do is answer that question. It does have a series, um, well, several answers um, during the course of the talk. Start by describing some of our main, our main research goals. Um, there are three. The first one's kind of the overarching, the main question, which was to look at how asylum seekers and refugees are constructed um, in the British press. Um, between that particular time period. We actually started doing this, we started collecting data around about 2006, which is, that's why we just chose the most recent set of data, there wasn't anything special about that particular time period um, in itself. Although it was quite an interesting period to actually look at, um, that transpired. As well as considering the whole of the British press as sort of one, one big lump, we were quite interested in looking at variation as well between it. So we we're quite interested in whether there are differences over that time period, whether certain discourses changed, or certain ways of talking about asylum changed over time. Um, and we were also interested in looking at differences between different types of newspapers as well. So, were there differences, say, between tabloid newspapers and broadsheet newspapers, and the ways that they represented refugees and asylum seekers? We had a kind of methodological question as well. We were doing something relatively new um, in linguistics, um, which was combining these two different types of analyses together, which hadn't really been done um, very much before. So we have a a quantitative method, um, which was sort of my my area. That was called corpus linguistics. Anybody heard of that or or used it? No? That's all right? It's okay. And then there was a, a qualitative method, which is called critical discourse analysis. Anyone heard of that? Yeah, you're not, okay, so you know CDA, that's nice. Um, so we were, we we're trying to combine these two methods together um, and to know whether or not they could actually help each other um, to answer the research questions that we had. So that the corpus linguistics method involved collecting large amounts of um, written text in computerized format, and then get using computer software um, to, to search through all of this data and identify linguistic patterns within it. And that was the kind of first stage of analysis. Whereas the the critical discourse analysis method, that involves carrying a much more detailed qualitative analysis of the, the linguistic phenomena in the articles. So one thing, for example, with the CDA that we did is we looked at who gets quoted. So we took an article and we looked at how many words. Um, you know, an immigrant or a refugee would get quoted and where they would get quoted in the article. Would the quotation be right at the end? Would it be sort of backgrounded or would it be at the beginning? Would they get more space or would somebody like Home Secretary get more, more quotation in relationship to somebody who was a refugee or an asylum seeker? And that involved obviously a lot more detailed analysis looking at individual articles. Both of these methods though have have problems um, associated with them. I don't think by themselves they can really ha- fully answer I, these questions. So we were sort of trying to combine them to take the best of both and see if they could sort of work off each other. Um, and we, we did get some quite interesting results. Why would we want to to bother looking at newspapers at all? Um, a methodological kind of reason, first of all, is that they're quite easy to get hold of. Um, the university that I'm at, and I'm sure your university has it too, subscribes to something called Let Nexus UK, which is just an online database of newspaper articles. Um, lots of UK ones, but also ones from America, other places as well. So you can just very quickly use this to download hundreds or thousands of articles onto your own computer for analysis. Secondly, British newspapers, they're very read in the UK still, um, and they comprise a very important way that we, we obtain our news. Um, They're also politically biased, um, and they make no secret of it. I don't know if if you were old enough or win the country at the time. This is from 1992, and it was the the day that the Conservatives won the general election. um, And the sun here is kind of gloating and saying, we won it. It's the sun what won it, um, because it was incredibly biased um, in its sort of reporting of election coverage, and um, it wanted the Conservatives to win, and, and they did. So newspapers... Influence or attempt to influence the views of the public, and this can also impact on, on government policy. Um, there's a study there by Duffy and Rowden, um, which was looking at public attitudes towards race and immigration, and they found that there were strong indications that it's actually newspapers that have the strongest impact. But also, I think it's not just the case that we're kind of with dustbins, we're uncritical, and we're just sort of taking what newspapers tell us. I don't think that's obviously the case. Newspapers are often at the mercy of their own readership, and newspaper readers tend to buy newspapers that reflect their own views and attitudes as well. And newspapers have a a financial interest in not upsetting too many of their readers. So, to an extent, the relationship between newspapers and readers is is quite reciprocal and quite dynamic, with each kind of influencing the other. One of the criticisms aimed at people who do critical discourse analysis or, or those small-scale qualitative um, analysis of, of texts um, is that because they go into a lot of detail and it takes quite a long time, you, know, you can spend a whole month just looking at one newspaper article, you can't really get much done um, that way sometimes. You can't really analyze a wide range of texts. And a problem in this is that your findings end up not being generalizable to a wider sample or a wider population. Often people who do critical discourse analysis kind of start with a position anyway. They identify a problem, they they have a kind of opinion of that problem, and they want to kind of show what's wrong with the world and put it right. And that's fine, I mean, to do that. I think we all you can't get away from the fact that you're biased anyway. But a problem with just choosing small amounts of data is that you could be criticized for cherry-picking the text which prove your point. So you, you sort of you read a text, you think, that's terrible, I'm going to focus on that, analyze it. Do a paper on it, but there may be a thousand other texts which say the opposite or have a different story to tell. So, you're not really giving a full representation of the, the bigger picture there. So, in order to counter this problem of, of you know, the focus on small scale texts, um, we're doing something called corpus linguistics. Um, corpus, Latin word for body. Um, basically, a corpus is just a body of text or a body of, a body of language. It's quite a big body, um, millions of words or so. And this body is supposed to be representative of a particular language variety or, or genre or, or subgenre of language, such as newspaper reports. And looking at the language of newspapers um, is ideal for this kind of corpus study. It's argued that newspapers kind of have a, a kind of incremental effect in terms of the way that they influence um, humans. Fairclough, who is a, a critical discourse analyst, has pointed this out. He says that a single text on its own is quite insignificant, but the effects of media power are cumulative. They kind of work through the repetition of particular ways of handling causality and agency and so forth. So it's kind of thing you buy a newspaper every single day and you're reading sort of the same thing over and over again, day after day after day, and you may not even be aware of it, but those things are influencing you unless you're incredibly critical and aware of what's going on. Stubbs and Hoey, um, who are corpus linguists, also agree with um, with this idea of repeated patterns in language, um, showing that ideas are widely shared in a discourse community, and also the idea that a word in itself can trigger a stereotype um, because of the cumulative effects of your encounters with that word in the past. Also, using corpus methods can help to reduce um, search of bias. So we're not just focusing on a few texts which confirm our preconceived expectations. We're having to account for whatever's there, and we don't really know what we're going to find. And humans tend to be quite bad, actually, at sort of spot, doing research sometimes like this. Um, we have a number of just cognitive biases in our brains that we can't really get away from. We're just born with them; it's the way our brains work. Um, Valone, for example, talks about this hostile media effect. Um, which means that when we read a new story, if we already have an opinion about it, we tend to view that story as being biased against us. And they've given the same story to people who have very different opinions, and everybody has kind of focused on the bias and said that the story is negatively biased against their, their position. Um, Kahneman and Kaversky have also pointed out we tend to notice things that appear in certain orders um, or things that are quite easy to recall. And they give a quite um, a sort of famous example that. If we're asked to name things that begin with the letter K, or things that have K as the third letter, we're more likely to say that things that start with K are more frequent, that there are more of them in language. But in fact, it's not, it's just things that start with K are easier for us to recall, so we think that they're more frequent in language, and in fact, they're not. And there's lots and lots of these sorts of kind of analytical and cognitive biases that we have, um, and people in psychology have been looking at these now for quite a few decades. The nice thing about computers is that they don't have these biases. Um, so they just give us basically what, what's accurate. And they can do it incredibly quickly as well. And thirdly, while we can use this large data set to tell us about the mainstream patterns and what's actually going on, you know, what the majority discourses are, the fact that this is so large might also give us access to some of the, the rarer cases of language or discourse that we might miss if we're just looking at five texts. So we also get the big stuff, but we also have a chance at identifying the, the kind of um, resistance patterns or things that are in conflict with the majority in the data as well. I'll talk a little bit about the corpus, or the, the body of data, and how we collected it as well. We use 19 newspapers. Um, we've sp- I've split this into t- tabloids, broadsheets, um, regionals, and Sundays, or, or weekly newspapers there. Most of them that we collected are national newspapers, but we did, we did potentially think that looking at the Evening Standard and the Liverpool Echo. Might be quite interesting sites of data because that's where there are you know, quite higher numbers of um, um, migrants or immigrants. And we wanted a range of different different types of um, newspapers. So you know, sort of tabloids have more populist views. The broadsheets aimed at more middle class readers have more in depth stories, um, and there's also kind of a range of different political perspectives there. So. Something like The Sun or the, the Daily Mail is quite a conservative political perspective, whereas something like The Guardian um, is a much more sort of liberal or leftish um, perspective as well. The Business, I don't know if any of you read that, it's now gone out of, out of um, commission. It no longer prints anymore. It was a kind of weekly newspaper that turned into a magazine. But we thought it might be interesting to see whether or not kind of having an economic newspaper or um, journal would, would actually sort of, it, it have something to do with... them. Um, asylum seeking or refugees as well. So altogether we had about 175,000 newspaper articles, which comes through about 140 million words in total. Give some information about how we how we actually identify these articles. You type in a a search term into into Nexus the database and it just gives you the articles that contain those words. So we this spent a bit of trial and error coming up with this term here, and that's eventually what we used to, to obtain the articles. The um, asterisk um, is a wild card, which means any set of characters. So, refugee followed by the star means it will find refugees as well. So, it finds the plural and the singular version. Um, and there were certain things we wanted to find articles that had the word deport in them, like deported or deporting, as they often, and nearly always, they were about refugees or asylum seekers. Um, but we didn't <coughs> want words like deportment, so we've got a special thing at the bottom there to say, don't have articles like that. It's not a perfect search term. I don't think it would ever be possible to do it, to find the perfect search term that would get every single article about immigration over that time period. You'd have to think to do it by hand. Um, so, For example, there could be an article which just talks about refugees using the word they, or some sort of strange, oblique reference, or a name of somebody, and we're going to miss that, obviously. Um, so it's not perfect, but you know, it's given us a lot of data, and I think that's you know, enough to say we're confident that it's generalizable. We were quite interested in four, four terms in particular, refugee, asylum-seeker, migrant, and immigrant. These um, we were very frequent in the corpus that we collected, um, and once we started doing our analysis, we found that they were used in quite interesting ways. And one thing that we did quite early on is we thought, well, let's try and find out what these terms mean, or if there are kind of any official definitions, and then we can sort of try to link this to the newspapers to see whether the newspapers are using these terms in the same way. So we looked at some dictionary definitions, and we looked at definitions provided by the Refugee Council as well, to see whether or not they could give us an idea of official definitions. I'm not going to focus on the whole table, but I'll focus on these these first two words, refugee and asylum seeker, because they're quite quite interesting. So this dictionary here defines a a refugee as someone who's had to leave their country um, due to a war or political or religious reasons. And if you look at the definition of asylum seeker by the dictionary underneath, that's pretty similar Um, Again, someone who's left their country um, but then they've asked the government of another country to be allowed to live there. So according to this, it looks as if you start off as a refugee and then if you ask the government of that country to stay there, then you you turn into an asylum seeker. So refugee first, asylum seeker second. But have a look at the refugee council's definition. They say an asylum seeker is someone who's left the country due to persecution and then they've exercised their legal right to apply for asylum. And they say a refugee is someone whose asylum application has been successful. So this implies the opposite progression of the dictionary. You start off as an asylum seeker. If your case is successful, then you turn into refugees. So it's kind of the reverse of what the dictionary is saying. And we, find this, we were quite surprised at this. We didn't expect really to, to find this kind of difference there. Um, and it kind of hinted that you know if the if the official people can't get it can't agree, then how are the newspapers going to do? And and how are people who are you know reading newspapers going to cope with these, these terms as well? Okay, I'll talk a little bit about some of the things we found in our analysis. I'll talk quite some of the quantitative, bigger pictures first and then maybe get more detailed. I don't know if you can see this too well. It's a chart which tells us about the frequency of the number of articles over time. So this bottom axis here is a a sort of time scale. It starts up at 1996 in January and ends in 2005 to (coughs) December. And the, the red line is just the frequency, the number of articles we had in each month. So you can see it starts off quite quite low to begin with There's some fluctuations and then there's this huge spike um, which is about 1990, 1999 to begin with, the biggest spike of all and then it goes right back down again and then there are some more, some more spikes as well <laughs> We found that quite interesting that there's this variation but the overall picture, if you were to smooth this out, it's a sort of upward, upward line like that so it's suggesting that over this period the concept or the topic of immigration has become more of an issue, it's become more, more important over time. We looked at some of these spikes in more detail to try to figure out why, why, was, why was this big, big rush of articles at that particular point. And you can very easily link them to one, sometimes two or three um, sort of events that were going on in the world. Things like the Twin Tower attack, the war that followed it, um, Later on, we're finding that um, political policy was, was sort of impacting on the number of stories about immigration, suggesting that it starts to become more of a political issue um, in sort of the last few years um, of the data that we've got. And refugees were very much seen in those periods, in that time period, is, is quite a quite negative part of this kind of political battle, something that the government had been criticized about, um, and something refugees were not wanted in the UK. We wondered whether this this graph was to do with changes in asylum applications to the UK as well. So we had a, we sort of plotted that too, and this is it here. We, we took it quite a long way back. Um, our data starts around about here and goes to there. But you can see sort of before that there was a, a peak there, and not very much in the eighties. So there's this very high period of of um, asylum applications from 1999 to 2000. And then there's this, this very sharp decrease. And by 2005, it's gone right back down to you know, levels of over a decade ago. And that suggests that you know, this doesn't really mirror what's happening with the newspaper articles. <coughs> in that when asylum applications go down, the newspaper articles keep going up. So it, maybe there's a lag or something going on there. But it's, we find it quite interesting that even when people have stopped applying for asylum in such large numbers. The newspapers still find it really interesting to talk about immigration. It's sort of become this big big topic that they can't leave alone. OK, I'll talk a bit more about the, more about the linguistic analysis that we, we did. We used a, a piece of corpus software called Wordsmith to do our analysis something you can download if you want to try it yourself on the internet. If you just type in wordsmith and corpus, you can um, find it and download a trial version of it if you want to. Wordsmith is really useful. Very quickly, it looks at all of the data you have and you can identify patterns and relationships between words on the data based upon statistical frequencies. And we were very interested in this, this concept of collocation um, in linguistics and how that related to our data. And collocates are just, very simply, they're just words that occur near each other quite a lot on either near each other or next to each other, usually within a space of about five words either side. So an example of collocate, um, say if you took a word like bank, you would say that bank collocates with manager, it also might collocate with river, for example. And collocate to give you an idea about the meaning of the word and the different contexts it can occur in. And they're often quite useful further in telling us about ideology or discourse or about hidden attitudes in language. So we find, for example, that migrants and jobs were very strong collocates of each other. Whenever we found migrants in the corpus, we tended to find jobs somewhere nearby, hovering around more, more often than not, which was quite interesting. And when you start to look at the context of, of what's happening when these words appear, you to get the idea about what's happening with discourse. So here's an example um, of that collocation. Migrants take all new jobs in Britain, and that was quite a typical example of this, of this collocation. And the in linguistics goes that these words have a kind of Pavlovian association with each other. So if you read a newspaper every day and you see something like migrants take all new jobs every day for 100 days, and then on the 101st day you just see the word migrant by itself, without jobs, you're going to think about migrants taking jobs because of all of the 100 days in the past where you've been primed to think about them taking your jobs. So that's how they work, they kind of create these associations in language between each other, they're called priming effects. So we were especially interested in collocates of our four terms, um, refugees, asylum seekers, immigrants, and migrants. We wanted to know whether or not these words had specific collocates across the whole corpus, or whether they had shared collocates as well. We're a little bit worried, though, about these spikes in the graph. Um, so, for example, let's go back. You know, we've got we've got some big spikes here, and it could be that same word like Sumatra collocates an awful lot because of an earthquake in Sumatra, which happened around about here. And that's a kind of a very localized collocate. It's only going to really happen in like one month of the data. It's not telling us about the bigger picture. And we weren't really as interested in, in those. We wanted to know about collocates that happened all the way through our data. So we tried to focus on collocates that were kind of consistently spread and we split our data into 10-year chunks and then looked at the collocates in each of the chunks. Um, And we said that a word only (coughs) is a collocate if it occurs in 7 out of 10 of the chunks, which sort of gives it a majority, more than the majority in fact, being on the cautious side. Once we'd got all of these collocates of the words, we had to sort of categorise them and put them into different groups. And we found that most of them were sort of quite similar to each other and being used to achieve similar sorts of goals. This is a table that we we ended up creating. We didn't base this on any pre-existing categorization scheme, but we kind of worked it out ourselves by looking at the words and trying to work out what they meant, what they were used to do. So these are collocates of all of the collocates that relate to refugees, asylum seekers, immigrants, and migrants all, all together, and they occur um, in at least seven of the years that we looked at out of the 10. And these give us a good idea about some sort of the main ways that um, immigration is characterized in terms of discourse in the, in the press as a whole. Um, some of them are quite descriptive, so things like transit are so just basically basically where is that person from and it, you know, or where are they going to? And they generally names of countries. Not especially interesting and not we, we maybe expect that. But some of the other categories are much more interesting in terms of of ideology or or discourse. Um, So for example, this category here, number, um, relates to sort of the amount of of, um, people who are are moving around the world at any given time. And we found that some of them were quite interesting, had metaphors like flooding or pouring or streaming. These were all water metaphors describing um, immigration or the movement of human beings um, in the terms of it being like water in some way. So refugees are implied to be flooding into a country, particularly flooding into the UK, or they're pouring in. And we can argue that this is a kind of a shortcut to a, to a discourse. Um, there's several pieces of information encoded within that word flooding when, it's, when you talk about flood of refugees. So the word flood itself is a bad word. Floods are bad. and um, We don't want a flood to happen. It's a disaster. So there's a link between refugees and a, and a bad thing straight away. Um, you know, they, they could have said refugees are coming in, but they don't. They focus on this, this negative word flooding. Also, flood implies a kind of natural disaster. Um, a flood has no agency in itself. Um, a flood doesn't decide where it's going to go, it just goes there. It doesn't really have any, any human kind of mind, does it? So, in a similar way, if we talk about a flood of refugees, we're kind of removing agency from the refugees themselves. We're sort of saying that they're just this mass, this kind of like a random almost exodus. Um, and they're just going to turn up and there's nothing we can do about it and it's going to be terrible when we get there. Um, so it's kind of dehumanising, I think, these people as well. third class of words that we've got here are to do with words about um, entry and um, denoting the journey from one place to another. Things like arrive, to come, to cross, to wait. We find the word trying here quite an interesting word which was which was quite common, the idea that people were trying to get somewhere. Um, and that seems to be quite quite interesting in terms of discourse as well. I'll talk about that one in a bit more detail. Here's an example from the Sunday Times, and it's a reference to asylum seekers. Um, Quite a lot going on in this example. And what we often had to do was go into articles themselves and and look at them in much more detail. And the collocates kind of helped us to, to find interesting things. They kind of acted as signposts for more interesting articles to examine. So we've got here Calais, is still crawling with asylum seekers trying to break into Britain. The word also the word crawling is quite interesting here. Um, again, it's kind of more, more like a metaphor, metaphoric reference. They're not literally crawling on the ground. Um, and if you look at other, other language data, sort of a general corpus of just general English, you find that when you see the word crawling, it usually refers to beetles, worms, ants and flies. So it's kind of a way of, again, metaphorically suggesting that these things are like insect pests, that we don't really want them at all, They're in negative. But the word trying is the one I want to focus on. Um, it's interesting because it's collocating with, with asylum seekers. It's the asylum seekers who are trying to break into Britain. And that's potentially quite a strange sentence, because by any of the official definitions, an asylum seeker is someone who has already made themselves known to the authorities and said, look, I'm here. I don't want to go home, can I, can I stay, please? And what process do I have to go through? Um, but these people are not yet asylum seekers. They haven't done that yet. They're still in Calais. They haven't got to the UK. And they may become asylum seekers once they get there, but at this stage, they're not. Um, and this, that distinction, maybe it's not an important distinction. I'm, I'm, I don't know what, what you think of that, but it's, it's something that the, the newspapers didn't let, didn't rarely seem to, to get. I find it quite interesting that these terms had very similar collocates. Um, so they shared collocates together. And that's kind of quite important because it suggests that the ways that these words have been used are quite similar if they have if they're occurring in very similar contexts and have very similar collocates. We maybe expect immigrants and migrants to have quite a high percent of shared collocates, um, because they're quite they have quite general meanings anyway. But we're maybe less we're a bit more surprised to find that. Asylum seekers and immigrants had 43% of shared collocates. We wouldn't have really expected that maybe to have, been, to have been so high there. Particularly because asylum seekers is a much more specific term, um, and immigrants is a much more general term. We also noticed that the words themselves in this table tended to collocate with each other. So where we saw asylum seeker, we'd often see the word immigrants in the same sentence or if we saw uh, migrants, we'd see refugees occurring in the same sentence or a few words away. We find that quite interesting as well. So again, I'll stick with the, the word trying, and here are three few examples of cases where refugees or asylum seekers or immigrants or migrants are sort of occurring quite, quite close to each other. And what we found was quite interesting is that these terms almost seem to be used interchangeably um, by some of the, the newspaper. Articles. I'll just read out this middle one here. I won't read them all out. Channel Tunnel security came under scrutiny last night after 44 illegal immigrants were intercepted, trying to reach Dover. The desperate asylum seekers walked seven miles in complete darkness before being caught. So the answer to that question at the title of the talk, when is an asylum seeker not an asylum seeker, it's, the answer is when it's an illegal immigrant. Well, that's, that's the first answer I've got. What seems to be happening here is that there's a a kind of rewording um, of these terms. One term can just take the place of another term. And there's a kind of blurring in the press of these categories um, of meaning. So they all kind of become almost like the same thing. So refugees get labeled as asylum seekers, and asylum seekers get labeled as illegal immigrants. And so no one in the press really seems to know what these terms mean. They're just bad things, people that we don't want. And I think that in itself is quite quite. Potentially quite a dangerous thing because if we don't, if, if these terms all have the same the same meaning, and clearly there are distinctions between these people, and we can start to question the legality of anyone coming to the UK or a country um, if we decide we don't like them or don't want them. Uh, and speaking of legality, I'll refer. This is the the original table of collocates. This is another interesting um, category, which is to have collocates of words relating to legality. Things like bogus, genuine, illegal, caught, detained or smuggled. And we found that the phrase illegal asylum seeker was was very common in the data. And again, this is quite a problematic term, illegal asylum seeker. Um, It goes against the official understandings of what an asylum seeker is by the, the refugee council and also by the dictionaries. So officially, anyone is allowed to seek asylum. Anyone can come to the UK and say, I'm claiming asylum, I'm, I'm now you know, becoming an asylum seeker. And you go through an application process. You have your case considered, and then either you pass or fail. So it's kind of like application. It's almost like a, applying for a job or an, or, or just an exam. Anyone can do it. Um, so the term is illegal asylum seeker or bogus asylum seeker has as much meaning, say, as illegal exam taker or something like that. And in fact, the Press Complaints Commission really got on the case um, of of newspaper editors about this this, this term, and they wrote to one of the newspaper editors in October 2003, and they said, look, don't use that term, illegal asylum seeker, it's just, it's nonsensical, you know, it's a really misleading term. Um, They said, you know, they can only become illegal if they've made their application, it's been rejected, and then they decide to stay into the UK, you know, even though they've been told it's time to go back to another country now. That's when they become... An illegal immigrant, but there's no such thing as an illegal asylum seeker. So that answers to the question when is an asylum seeker not an asylum seeker is when it's a bogus um, asylum seeker. We became quite interested in this term bogus asylum seeker and wanted to know something about which newspapers used it most and whether there was any change um, over time um, in this term. There's an example also of it being used. This graph um, shows the frequency of, of terms like legal asylum seeker, um, illegal asylum seeker, genuine or bogus immigrant or migrant. I've standardised this so you can sort of compare each, each time period. It's sort of um, it's frequency of these terms per thousand articles in the data, rather than overall frequency, which would, wouldn't be so useful because there's different numbers of articles in each year. And you can see here that the terms, these, sort of neg- these nonsensical terms, peaked around 2002-2003. to 2003. And then they started to die off in, in 2004. And maybe this is due to the Press Complaints Commission in 2003 telling, telling newspaper editors to stop using these terms. One thing to bear in mind, though, is not when we found people using these terms, it didn't always mean they were using it in a very negative, biased way. So sometimes you get an article in The Guardian where someone would be saying, Isn't the sun terrible? It's using this phrase bogus asylum secret shouldn't be. Um, And we'd we'd remove those from this graph because they wouldn't be fair to put in there. So there was a kind of minority discourse where some of the particular left leaning broadsheets were sort of aware of this problem and they were kind of commenting on it. But that was definitely the kind of minority discourse, I think. In terms of which newspapers were using these terms the most, these um the focus terms, um, you can see right at the top there, the Sun is 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 the, the kind of the prime user of, of, of these um, sort of silly terms, and then you've got the other more right wing um, tabloids, the Express, the People, and the Star, also using them um sort of twi- almost twice the average, and then it sort of peters out quite a bit. And then towards the bottom, we've got the *Independence* and the *Guardian*, and the *Observer*, the *Times*, the more broadsheet newspapers, who are sort of moving away from these terms and, and don't seem to be using them. Although they are still using them, you know, even, even the *Guardian* is using some of these terms occasionally. So they're still they're still slipping through into a sort of a more elite liberal discourse, which again maybe suggests that the *Sun* um, and the other tabloids are maybe influencing um, this, the discourse here. Um, and these terms are being used and we're not even thinking about the effects that they have. Okay, I'll talk a bit now about differences again between different types of newspapers. Um, we were quite interested in this distinction between tabloids and broadsheets and whether there were any other differences <coughs> apart from whether they talked about bogus asylum seekers. We we're quite interested in whether tabloids use certain words more frequently than the broadsheets and vice versa. And one way to do this is to carry out something called a Keyword Analysis, which again is something that Wordsmith can do very easily. The way it works is you split your data into two, two chunks. You have all the tabloids in one chunk and all the broadsheets in another. And you count up the frequencies of all of the words in, in those two chunks. And then Wordsmith runs statistical tests, log-likelihood tests, um, and then basically it's a list of the words which are statistically more frequent in the tabloids when compared to the broadsheets and, and vice versa as well so you get these, these kind of keywords so these are words here on this, this um, page which the tabloids use a lot more than the broadsheets would do and then the next page I've got is the, the broadsheet keywords and again I've tried to categorise these according to the, the original set of categorisations for the collocates that we had. There were many more words in this actually, out. I've only tried to pick out a few here that were kind of quite interesting and quite representative. And also, it tended to be the case that if you had a word like flood here, you also got flooding and flooded and floods. So, all the different grammatical forms of a word also appeared as keywords. And I've just left those off because it's kind of repetition, really. So, we've got seven main, main categories here. Um, the first four number, economic burden, legality, and plight. Um, I've already mentioned those, they kind of tend to be general things that all newspapers talk about. But the three at the bottom seem to be quite, quite new, new ones that are more specific to the tabloids. Um, there's the idea that immigrants are abusing the system in some way, so there are cheats and racketeers and, and scams surrounding immigration. Also, the tabloids tend to focus more on the idea of immigrants as being a threat. So they talk about murders and crime, there's gangs, there's the threat of terrorism as well, and then then sort of religious fanatics associated with terrorism too. And then this this set of words to do with them being unwelcome, you know, sort of boot them out of the country, have a crackdown of them, um, get them to leave or or deport them, things like that. So these generally seem to be more negative categories than when we looked at the whole set of data. The polite category is quite an interesting one. I guess that's probably one of the more positive, sort of positive ones um, in relationship to some of the others, in that they're talking about um, you know, immigrants experiencing um, misery or being desperate or being devastated or, or being in a tragedy. So in that sense, you sort of, you're sort of encouraged to feel pity for immigrants. Um, but again, I don't think it's a particularly positive category. I don't necessarily think just because you feel sorry for somebody, that's necessarily representing them in a, in a positive way. Here are the, the keywords of the broadsheet. So these are words which occurred statistically much more often in the broadsheet data than it did when compared to the tabloids. And again, some of these categories are quite similar to the tabloids, they're just different words in there. So the broadsheets are also interested in legality as well, but rather than talking about words like bogus, they'll talk about legitimacy or authentic, authenticity, things like that. So it's basically you know, the same idea, but just using a different type of language and a different type of audience. The broadsheets also tend to talk about religion, though. This is a, a sort of a new, a new category, much more than the tabloids. Um, so they'll talk about the religious identities of, of immigrants um, or, or asylum seekers. And they also write a lot more about war um, and conflict, which may be a kind of byproduct of broadsheet newspapers having a much more global focus. So they talk about events happening in other countries much more than the tabloids. The tabloids, we found, just tend to focus a lot more on the UK and what's going on at home. And in terms of the plight words, we found this word is quite, quite notable as well. Um, as well as all of the, the tabloid plight words are sort of Negative sort of feel sorry for these people. At least the broadsheets have this word "survivors," which at least sort of positions them possibly more positively. Um, if you're a survivor, that's maybe a better a better way of thinking about people. I don't know. And we also had these two words at the bottom here, which were positive words describing um, good things that um, migrants and immigrants would bring to the UK. The idea that diversity was a good thing in itself. Um, and also the idea that um, they could be integrated into, into sort of existing communities in the UK. We didn't find any of these positive words in the tabloids at all. Okay, so to conclude, um, the analysis of collocate suggests that the terms for migration are constructed in very, very similar ways. The fact that these words are often used interchangeably with each other suggests that the British press don't really understand. Um, you know, sort of the nuances um, of immigration, um, they kind of oversimplify the, the concepts behind them and sometimes they make, they make sort of factual errors. They don't really seem to make a distinction between forced and voluntary um, immigration and they don't really seem to recognise that people are actually legally enti- entitled to seek um, asylum as well. When we looked at the collocates in general, we found that newspapers tend to view immigration as a problem the, the more popular or the majority discourses tend to revolve around a very small set of interrelated categories: um, abusing the system, um, the legality of, of, of whether they should be here or not, um, the economic threat, um, and also um, crime and large numbers of them. The tabloids, in particular, seem to be very, very effective and powerful in constructing this negative discourse, and we found it sort of seeping into the broadsheet discourse occasionally. Although we did find fewer cases where broadsheets were trying to resist this um, by being critical of the tabloids. But it definitely seemed to be the case that the, the tabloids were setting the agenda and then it was the broadsheets who had to respond to that agenda and either to agree with it or to ignore it or disagree. I'll talk more maybe critically about the study itself and reflect on some of the kind of issues it raises in terms of methodology that we used um, before I finish. First, the the corpus itself doesn't really tell us anything beyond its own contents. Um, So I've had to bring in other types of information. I've had to bring in graphs showing asylum applications, information about the Press Complaints Commission, the, the, the dictionary definitions and the definitions from the Refugee Council as well. So I don't think if you do an analysis like this and you just use the data itself, it's only going to take you so far. I think you need to... Think about the social context, the historical context, the political context, and in bringing in the source information in order maybe to interpret, or explain, or account for the patterns that you have there. Otherwise, you know, you're just describing. And I think describing is fine, but it only takes you you so far. Also, there were no visuals in the, the text that we downloaded from the from the database. All the pictures were stripped out, unfortunately. We just had the words, and it. And I've tried to put up some as we've been going through some of the actual front pages of these newspapers. And you can see that they're very visually oriented. And I think doing a visual analysis as well as doing a a linguistic analysis would be really interesting um, in order to sort of confirm or to go beyond what what I found here. But that's not something that we've been able to do. It's much harder to get hold of lots of copies of of pictures um, to go to some sort of paper archive somewhere. So that's a study I think that somebody else probably needs to do in trying to relate it to what we've done. The other issue is about bias, um, and it's the kind of concept I want to problematize really. Um, I think it's probably uncontroversial to say that newspapers are biased, but then the question becomes well, how do we define bias? What do we decide is acceptable bias and what's unacceptable bias as well? And that's a much more subjective area which people tend to disagree over. So we use this. Term bogus asylum seeker is a kind of example of bad bias or, you know, because it's just so inaccurate. Um, but I guess we're coming, we were coming from a position of doing this where we, we didn't really have a lot of information or, or sort of background knowledge about immigration to begin with. Um, so we didn't really have a vested interest in the subject of immigration. Um, and someone who maybe is an immigrant themselves or is from a centre like Compass maybe have a very different perspective on immigration and would interpret out the results that we got in a very different way to us. And I'll give a, a couple of examples of that. Um, I gave a shorter version of this talk um, at a seminar on immigration that we held at Lancaster University um, a few months ago. And one of the, the women in the audience um, was from a, a sort of an immigration research centre. Um, and she actually got quite annoyed at me at the end of the talk. And she said, you know, that was a very interesting quantitative analysis, but I felt a sense of malaise when I was listening to you. Um, and the problem with your talk is you didn't question the, the concept of asylum seeking. So I, you know, I've been talking about it and saying, look, the newspapers got it wrong. They're talking about bogus asylum seekers, but everyone's allowed to apply for asylum. So they've got it wrong. But this woman was saying, the problem is with asylum itself, with the system of having to apply for asylum in this way. I and mean, wouldn't it be great if there was no borders um, and people could go where they wanted? And so she was just unhappy with everything I said because I hadn't questioned it, I hadn't started from that particular position. Um, and so that's you know, one thing, you know, bearing in mind that everyone seems to have a different position. Uh, you know, when I give a talk this, I'm always aware that what I say may be very different from other people's um, experiences of immigration and asylum. Another person I gave, um, who responded to an earlier talk I gave on the same subject, um, she she didn't really see that this term bogus asylum seekers, was a problem at all. She said, "Well, okay, the newspapers are using it incorrectly, but..." Um, they're kind of implying that it means someone who shouldn't be seeking asylum, even if they are, or they might later on. Um, and this, so she's kind of saying the newspapers have kind of re-signified this term. They've given it a new meaning of themselves, and pretty much everyone who reads newspapers understands what a bogus asylum seeker is, even if it doesn't officially fit with the, you know, the definition of the Refugee Council. So it's not, it's not such a big issue. Don't worry about it. Don't get upset about it. So that's kind of, then, too, there are different positions um, and I was, you know, according to both those people, my position was wrong. Um, and, I, and I kind of fit somewhere in the middle. So I, I kind of, am, I'm ready to kind of be told I'm wrong at the end of these talks And I think. And that's okay if you want to tell me I'm wrong. And I, again, I, I don't want to kind of say that I'm right. I want to kind of say that everyone has a different position on this. And these kind of analyses are always going to be contestable, I think. I end another kind of criticism I've had of, of, of this kind of talk is that what some people said to me, why are you looking at newspapers still? <laughs> um, you know, newspapers, new no one's buying newspapers anymore. We get all our information from Twitter now and Facebook. Um, so you should be looking at Twitter and Facebook instead, because that's where it's at. And newspapers are going out the window and no, one's, no one cares about them. And I've looked at, I've, I've done some I did graphs of newspaper readership in it. Some of them are going down quite a, quite a lot. Um, although some of them are maintaining. Um, but they are bought less than they were, say, a decade ago. But even because of that, I think they're still quite important. Um, a lot, most newspapers still have free online versions, which maybe they didn't 20 years ago. And so, you know, people might not be buying them, but they're still reading stuff online. Um, also, not just in the UK, but you know around the world, people are sort of accessing articles by the Daily Mail and the Sun, and so these, these discourses are not just sort of impacting on the UK, but and you know the whole the whole world. And also, I think people on Facebook and Twitter tend to have to get their information from somewhere. Um, if you've got an opinion, and I think they're they're getting their information from the newspapers originally, and then you know putting links to newspapers or being critical of them or or just you know being uncritical of them as well. And it does seem to be the case as well that these, these dominant discourses in the newspapers seem to have influenced um, both the public and, and government policy um, in the last year or so. Um, I mean, There's been quite a lot of stuff out just this week, you probably were, yourselves, is that there was a searchlight um, educational trust report saying that more than half of um, people in the UK think that Muslims are a problem. And 63% of white Britons think that immigration is, um, is bad for the UK. Um, Deb Cameron just, you know, quite recently made that speech where he said that multiculturalism and you know, failed. I um, think on February the fifth. And then there's been these, the, um, the government have put these caps on non EU skilled workers coming into the UK. Um, so there were six thousand three hundred less people allowed in this year than there were in two thousand and nine. And I think while public policy and public attitudes can be influenced by a wide range of phenomena. I still think that newspapers have quite an important role to play. I don't think they're going away um, anytime soon. Okay, I'll finish there. Thank you very much for listening.